Welcome to the Reimagining Faith podcast with the Pastors Jackson. This is a podcast for seekers, dreamers, and fellow sojourners who are just trying to figure out what it means to be followers of Jesus in the 21st century. At our church, Open Table UCC, we're following an Advent series called Reflecting the Sacred, in which we are looking for the many ways that Christ is reflected and refracted in our lives, in our time, in our space, and in our midst. So we thought it would be fun to take some time each week to talk to someone who is connected to our little church plant and explore the ways that they see the sacred reflected in their lives. First up is the Reverend Sean James, pastor of Salt and Light Church in Southwest Philly, as well as our Associate Conference Minister for Congregational Development. Sean is a seasoned church planter and someone who has been on this journey with us since before day one. We talk about the thrilling terror of following Jesus into forgotten spaces, falling back in love with the church, and recovering from abuse. We recorded this conversation on Zoom after one of our semi-regular check-ins, so the audio quality isn't the best, but the quality of conversation more than makes up for it. So without further ado, let's get to our conversation. Yeah, so maybe um, we can begin by telling us a little little bit about um, the context where you serve and maybe who you are as a as a person. Sure. So um, I currently uh, live and serve in Philadelphia. Um, a very purposeful decision by myself and my family. Um, I'm from Chicago originally. My wife is from South Carolina. We met in school in Florida. We came to Philadelphia three years. Um, we came to Philadelphia for what we thought was a three-year trip. We were coming here. My wife was going to go to law school. We were going to be in Philadelphia for three years, and we were heading back down south. And that was about 24 years ago now. <laughs> uh, so a long three years. Yeah, three-year trip is turned into um, a lifetime, but it's also I know where I am supposed to be. Um, a couple of things happened this year that I won't go into. That really clarified that for me. Um, that Philadelphia and specifically Southwest Philadelphia, which is our main location, is an area of the city that I feel called to. I feel like it's where I'm supposed to be. I feel like it is the field that the Lord has called me to do. And as you all know, that's really big for me. Like I feel like when it comes to church work, the calling is really important to me. It's not just the calling by a church. It's the calling by a community. It's the calling by a particular kind of work. You know, I am not one to sit in the idea of church work was like, let me kind of step up the church ladder, which you all know a lot of pastors do now. It's one church to the next. And I get to the bigger church that I can be at. I want to be where I know I've been called to be and where I feel like I've been called to serve. And so mm-hmm. Southwest Philadelphia was that area where we planted the church. We literally took a map of the city. We put it on my dining room table and we said, what's the sickest, least educated and poorest part of Philadelphia? And that's where we were going. Mm-hmm. And that's why we ended up in Southwest Philadelphia, which, of course, goes against all the uh, normative ideas when it comes to planning a church where you're supposed to do a demographic study and find out where the most money is and where the most college educated people are and where the most two family households are and all that good stuff that you're supposed really? to do. Are you supposed to do that? Do they yeah, actually to do people that. To I didn't tell you all that. So because <laughs> I wanted you all because when you all were planning, it was equally important to me that you all felt called to where you were being planted. Mm-hmm. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Denominations will tell you to do a demographic study. But if you do a demographic study and the demographics say this is where you should go, but the Lord doesn't say that's where you should go, then to me, I'm I'm going with the Lord. <laughs> so um and and 
the other point I make about that is if everybody just plants churches in communities that are already thriving, then what happens in the communities that are suffering? Um, I believe every community deserves to have a great church and the communities that probably need it more are the ones where we're least likely to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So I feel like we win. I feel like you all have found a calling to a community. And um, my calling is to Southwest Philadelphia, to the people of Southwest Philadelphia, to the families of Southwest Philadelphia. Um, And we do a satellite service in another part of the city right now, but that is our main location. We make that clear to everybody Mm -hmm. that that's our mission here. That's where we've been feel like we've been called to go. So this is a church that I planted 17 years ago. And I guess now we've had two really interesting things because we're not just a plant, but in 2020, we also became a merger. So um, we were a church planted in community on purpose that um, merged with another church. Uh, I guess the best way to say it is this was a church that had a fantastic building, but were struggling with people. And we were growing in people and needed a new building. And it just really kind of worked out to be um, a good situation in that we our assets and our liabilities as the two churches were both very different. Um, it just literally turned out that our assets were their liabilities and their assets were our liabilities. You know, we were young. They were a little old. Uh, we needed a building. They had one. We had people. They needed people. Their pastor was is a fantastic um nuts and bolts kind of person. Uh, I'm a big picture vision person. And so when we brought everything together and tied everything together, it just turned out that um, that that was a good move for us. And since the merger, we've actually doubled in size during the pandemic, doubled in ministry. So the planting and the merger, which are two really you know unique ways of doing church nowadays, both ended up being really, really good moments for us. This was another church that was also in our neighborhood, which is why I work. They were in Southwest Philly. Mm. They were, it, you know, everything just kind of turned out to be the right situation. So that is what Salt and Light is. Salt and Light is the merger of Grace Christian Fellowship, uh, the church I planted, non-denominational originally, but um, we became UCC in 2012 and New Spirit Presbyterian Church. And so now we are uh, UCC and Presbyterian um, there's a big and in the middle of our logo, salt and light. And so to me, I tell people the and is actually the most important part of our name mm-hmm. because we're a little bit of everything. We're we're met, we're we're Pentecostal, we're UCC, we're Presbyterian, we're young, we're old, um, we're social justice oriented, we're contemporary in our worship style. Um, we've got a whole lot of young people, and now because of the merger, we've got a, a crowd on the other side of the spectrum. Um, so, so as, and we may have in Mount Airy now and in Southwest Philly. So we, we, the, the end is really important that we are able to bring together a lot of different streams of Christianity. I think we're in some ways what the United Church of Christ says that she is, and I still believe she can be, which is a big tent. Yeah. And we got a little bit of everything in our church and we try to impress upon people that, the fellowship of the church is more important than building a, a direct community where everyone looks like you, sounds like you, and you know, acts like you. So, yeah. How'd you end up connecting with the UCC? So that was through Dr. Stephen Ray, uh, who at that time, you know, Dr. Stephen Ray just left the tenure as president of Chicago Theological Seminary. But when I met him, he was at Lutheran Seminary, and he was over. He was the Jeremiah Wright Professor of African American Studies, and um, 
So I'm there uh, as a student and, you know, two years into this plant. And he was like, Sean, your church should become UCC. And, you know, he and he he's a lifelong African-American UCC guy, which is, uh, you know, like a unicorn. Um, <laughs> not the, the most. Uh, the most right. popular, We're not the whitest but, denomination. Not not, the whitest. Yeah. But. His, his reasoning <laughs> rationale was really good. Right? So he was like, so you're historically Baptist. This is a congregational uh, denomination. So, you know, you don't have to kind of sell, you know, we don't have bishops, you know, we're pretty much like the Baptist in that the congregation is the highest, you know, is the highest body for, for the local, for the local church. Um, he said, I can see you guys are really big into social justice. That's a real big part of the United Church of Christ. And I think he was also at that time, it's funny to meet people who are kind of outside of the nominational structures, but also have a vision for where the nomination should go. And I think a part of his vision at the time was, yes, the nomination is in decline. And a part of the way that we can stem the tide of that decline is to find thriving churches and to try to get them, especially in their early stages. So it took us four years as a church to kind of work on it, talk about it, discern it, figure it out if it was the right move for us. But it turned out to be the absolute right move for us. Um, and, and I think being a part of the United Church of Christ, again, it's kind of like with the, even with the merger of the other church, it filled a lot of gaps for us. It filled a lot of the things that we were not able to do as a non-denominational church, you know, and I and, and when I, people ask me now because I, I talk to a lot of people now who are considering doing the same thing. And I tell them, here's what was most important for us from the day before we were UCC and the day after we were UCC, literally the experience for the average church member, nothing changed. You know, nothing changed about our worship, nothing changed about the way we related to each other. Nothing changed about our mission. Um, the the pastor had a pension. And um, and we had access to <laughs> to some other things that would be important for us that that we could not do as a standalone, you know, independent non-denominational church. And then we were able to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and participate in a lot of stuff. It's how I met Tracy Blackman. It's how I got involved in some of the work in Ferguson and, and some other places. And I appreciate that because, um, again, when you're just a, a single independent church, um, there are there are reasonings why that becomes a great thing, but the thing about congregationalism is you literally can continue to hold on to that identity, but still be a part of a family. Um, so, so being UCC was a, a big part of that for us. Mm. Resonate a lot with that. Um, I, I I had a question early on when you were explaining. Did you say that you live in Southwest Philadelphia? So, no, I live in Monterey, which is where I lived before we planted the church. Okay. Weirdly um, enough, my wife and I have talked about after our boys are gone, moving closer down to the church. Mm -hmm. So and that's also where we planted our satellite location a couple of years ago. We started, a, so we do an eight o'clock service much closer to my house. We actually meet at the chapel on Lutheran Seminary. Um, mm -hmm. And Monterey is, a, a you know, a, a wonderful community in Philadelphia. It's former Quaker so Mount Airy has everything, which is what I really, really do appreciate about living in Mount Airy. I, I don't know that I, for me, I would say, I don't know that I could live in a better place. Um, so all of our neighbors are Jewish and Quakers and, and Asian, um, got a wonderful lesbian couple that lives right across the street from us. Um, and Mount Airy has always been, it's the craziest thing. I mean, even going back to the sixties and seventies, Mount Airy was an integrated community. Um, it's the kind of community where when white flight happened, there was the kind of people that are in my area were the people who said, we're going to stay here. Um, now, it, it's a little higher on the socioeconomic status in general. So, you know, you have people who are or who can't make that decision. Um, 
But, you know, it, it has been a blessing to me to be able to raise my kids around a little bit of everything. And so mm-hmm. when they go to school and even going to my kids go to public school and even going to the public schools that they go to, you know, they, they and that's a purposeful decision of ours as well. Like I want my kids to be in public school because that's my fight. I'm, I'm fighting for kids in my church that are in public school. Yep. I also want my kids to be in public school. So they're a part of that community and a part of that fight. Um, so, so yeah, Mount, Mount Airy is, um, is probably, and, and also a very purposeful decision by ours to stay in the city. Um, but to also stay in the city someplace where, you know, safety is a little better than you can find in some other parts of Philadelphia. And I, I am seriously considering after my kids, I've got one leaving, one is in college, one leaving this year. And then we got a four year gap for the next one. And then, um, once they're all out and we're downsizing, I would like to live closer to the church. And I would like to live in Southwest Philadelphia in the community where the church is. Mm. You said the church doubled in size during the pandemic. That is fascinating. Yeah. Can you talk to I'm us about that? To out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, it, when I say I'm still trying to figure it out, I mean, I seriously, like I looked at the numbers <laughs> here yesterday. And I, had, I hadn't looked at 20, I hadn't looked at 2022 yet because I feel like I would say to myself, there's no way we are going to match 2021. And then yesterday I looked and we are like at 160 new members this year. And I was just, it just kind of blew me away. Um, but it it has been a pure, unadulterated God moment. Mm-hmm. And filling and bringing in those things where I said we were able to fill in each other's gaps really made us stronger. Like we we literally did become better together. Um, and that has made our visibility and availability even more. And it's a couple of smaller things. Like, you know, our new location is much more visible. It's on a major corner in the city. Um, and we we literally get people riding by on the trolley who see the work that's going on, see what's happening. And like, I've got a ton of stories of people who were like, I came by on the trolley one day. I saw you guys out there giving out clothes, giving out food. And I said, I just got to stop by one Sunday and see what's going on there. Or people who are walking by on Sunday. We, Whenever we can, we leave the doors open so people can hear the sound because the sound itself draws people into the church. So being more visible has been a part of that. The, um, pre-pandemic uh, virtual church was also helpful by pre-pandemic. I mean, having everything already set up before the pandemic happened. Yeah, um, made things really available so that once it happened, we were already out there, already online and really started from probably it was probably six months into the pandemic that I heard this actually from one of our local UCC pastors who was she was like, we're still inviting people to be a part of the life of the church. Crazy thing was with the pandemic going on, that had completely slipped my mind. I had stopped even making an invitation because I was like, who's going to join a church in the middle of a pandemic? Well, as soon as we started doing it, what we discovered is there were all these people who were online who were almost just waiting. They were like, hey, we want want to be a part of this. So once it happened, just right away. And then a couple of things I think that were important uh, on top of that. Outdoor service was really important for us at the height of the pandemic. Like we made this decision. We said, whenever we can be together outdoors, we're going to do it. Because, you know, all the free church was saying that 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 was the most safe way to do it. Um, And valuing community was really important. 
And so we were like, we are going to get together as often as possible. And until the CDC says something different, it's going to be outside. So if the temperature is going to be above 60, we're going to be out there and, and we're going to be together. And I think people really appreciated that. Did you do that in your parking, like in your parking lot? We did, right parking lot. We did it in the parking lot at the church. Um, and it was a lot of work. It was moving 250 to 300 chairs and speakers and instruments both ways. Yeah, you know, out and in. You know, it was an hour and a half before service, an hour and a half after service, just getting things together. Um, but that probably held the congregation together, but it also drew people because that became a big outdoor draw as well. So now you've got you, you. We would see people in their windows behind the yeah. church, across <laughs> the street, yeah. watching, listening, and then they would come down to the front door the next Sunday. And then they would come out on the sidewalk and then they walked over. And, you know, it took them a, a while to realize that we actually wanted them to be there. We wanted the neighbors to be a part of what we were doing. So out, outdoors was really, really important. Um, and then we are attracting a different type of church person now. Um, planet churches mostly attract unchurched people. And for our early years, that's who we were getting. This pandemic or pandemic informed, that's that's a word that I heard we should use instead of post-pandemic. Pandemic and like, informed, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, heard, <laughs> I was on one of those UCC meetings the other day that had some of those real smart UCC people. And they were <laughs> like, um, we shouldn't say post-pandemic, which I agree with, because I do think we are still very much in, uh, in a lot of this. But they were like, we should refer to it as pandemic informed. I was like, that's true. That's a good way of describing yeah. who we are right now. We, <laughs> we are pandemic informed. So our pandemic informed church now, uh, we now attract people who have been a part of other churches. Mm-hmm. And honestly, most of them are people whose churches basically stopped, you know, mm-hmm. but they still had a strong desire for something. Um, and some of them stopped because they weren't going to they didn't have much life left in them anyway. And the pandemic just accelerated what was happening yeah. anyway. And others of them were churches that they, they don't even really know why. But, you know, they wanted to continue to do ministry. And finding some place that gave them an opportunity to continue to ministry. So that's been another interesting shift in us in our church right now is we're starting to attract people from who are previously churched. That's a shift that has positive and negatives, right? Because with that also comes the way that they think church should be done. Yeah. <laughs> and ours is very different. And so, you know, some early on we try to do new member stuff very quickly and say, listen, you need to know who we are. So when you become, you have to make a decision as to whether you really want to be a part of this understanding, you know, welcoming is important to us. Um, uh, giving people value wherever they are on life's journey is important to us. Um, you know, your every person being a part of the, uh, the, the priesthood of all believers is important to us. We are expecting you to be a part of the life of the church and to find your ministry. Um, mm-hmm. And 95 percent of the time, that's a yes but it's even more important for those 5% who are like, you know, no, this isn't the church where I need to be because the last thing I want anybody to do is to, you know, create personal strife, but also strife within the body of Christ because it's not a good fit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Good word. Yeah. Good word. Where are you seeing um, Christ reflected? In Southwest Philly these days, 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great question. And so that question itself will allow me to talk a little bit more about like my journey, but also um, who I am as a as a believer. And so science is a big part of my faith journey. I was actually biology undergrad. And when I accepted my call to ministry, my senior pastor, I, said, I went to my pastor at the time. And I was at an Andy church then. And I told him, I said, I, want, I believe I've been called um, to preach and I'm changing my major to religion. And he said, no, you're not. Um, <laughs> and he said, you know, Sean, what do we need more? Do you think we need another, you know, preacher who, you know, studies religion? Or do we need some people who kind of know science well and who can bring uh, all of their faith into a strong understanding of science? So I kept biology. Yeah, Zach and I are, are on point with this. Yeah. <laughs> that is a good pastor. So, so one of my real strong, and, and I believe that's that was on purpose. I mean, if you listen to Jesus' teaching, Jesus actually uses science to talk about spiritual matters probably more than anything else. And I believe that God is efficient and that when God created the universe, this is a little Barbara Brown Taylor here in one of her books, that God decided to, instead of having two set of laws to govern the physical and the spiritual, I believe that God established one set of laws and that those laws govern everything. You reap what you sow. Uh, is a physical science law. It is a spiritual law. And I would go even further than that. I think all the laws of thermodynamics, all the laws of motion are laws that have a physical and a spiritual connection. But so I'm saying all that to say this. Um, I believe that every believer is called to be a boot. And you probably heard some of this before. I believe as believers in Jesus Christ, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't use this. I wish it did. It would make it even better. But <laughs> I do believe that as believers, we are moons. We are designed to reflect the light of the sun. We don't generate any light. We reflect light. Mm. And the moon is a horrible reflector. Yes. The moon is literally has the reflection of concrete, right? So the moon isn't a mirror. It's not aluminum foil. It's actually really bad at reflecting. But the moon is so bright because the sun is so bright. That's why the moon lights up. That's that's our thought is that, you know, the sun, Christ is so bright that believers reflect the light of the moon. And let's be honest, we don't always 100% reflect the light of the moon. We are sometimes sickle moons. We are sometimes crescent moons. And sometimes the world gets in between us and the sun and we are in a total lunar eclipse. <laughs> Not any light from the sun at all. But I believe that I am a moon and that I have, and this is what I try to teach everyone, that we are reflecting the light of Christ. Christ's light needs to shine in dark places. And in dark places, Christ needs moons. He needs for us to go into the places where we've been called to go and reflect that light. And let's be honest, Southwest Philadelphia Love Southwest Philadelphia to death, but because of so, so Southwest Philadelphia is a very quick story. Um, in the sixties and seventies, fifties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties, there was a major General Electric plant in Southwest Philadelphia. That was the main engine in Southwest Philadelphia, and so it was a Italian um, kind of Polish community, European immigrants, people working at the factory. Great church. The church that we're in right now was a huge white Presbyterian church back in those days. Um, that had over a thousand members and had all kinds of activities that were going on. That plant closed down in the 80s and people left Southwest Philadelphia overnight. Mm -hmm. They left so quickly that everyone couldn't sell their homes because, you know, market home values. And so a large number of people decided to turn their homes into Section 8 housing. 
So Southwest Philadelphia became a Section 8 haven in Philadelphia, which just brings in, you know, Section 8 is going to bring in all the things that come with that. And so it really became, for a long time, this is getting better, but for a long time, Southwest Philadelphia was known as the forgotten part of Philadelphia. It was so bad that it wasn't even a part of Philadelphia that you talked about that was bad. Like the bad parts of Philadelphia were, you know, people talk about West Philly and North Philly. Nobody even talked about Southwest. Also because it was such a cheap living area that most of the people who were there started to be immigrants. So there's you have a lot of Africans and East Asians, a lot of Haitians, Jamaicans, Liberians, Nigerians, Ghanaians. Um, I would say at least half of Southwest Philadelphia are uh, Caribbean, African, and East Asian immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, a there was a mayor. Uh, the mayor who was mayor of Philadelphia when I first came here was a mayor for eight years. Never set foot in the entirety of Southwest Philadelphia in the eight years he was mayor. Think about that. Yeah, like yeah. It, it was a known thing. He did not not a single church service. Not a speech, not a visit, a, a visit a school. I mean, didn't come at all. Um, hmm. City council wise, Southwest Philadelphia was connected to South Philly. So they had the same city council person. Well, the city council person was from South Philly. She spent all her time in South Philly. So completely forgotten about. Resources were so, so dark, a dark community that needed light. And I really feel like that's what we were called to be. We were called to kind of start to shine this light in Southwest Philadelphia. And that happens in a couple of ways. For me, first of all, it happens in convincing other people you're a moon too. Mm. A lot of our reflection is, a lot of my work is taking people who's been told their schools aren't worth much, who've been told their community isn't worth much, who've been told that therefore they're kind of not worth much and pouring constantly into them, hey, you are not the value of your community. In fact, you increase the value of your community. You increase the value of the schools in your community. You are a child of God. You were made in God's image and you deserve nothing less than anybody else deserves. And you ought to spend every moment of your life fighting to let the world know, to let Philadelphia know, to let this community know that you deserve better and you deserve more. So just... Pastor showed up to preach. (laughs) just getting other people to the point of saying, I am a moon. Mm. I reflect the light of Christ. I am just as much a moon as anybody else. You know, I, I have just as much going on as anyone else and wonderful things come out of me. So that, that's one of the ways I think that we reflect. The other one is breaking pathologies and generational curses, right? Mm. So we are a community that has a, a big issue with, with drug and alcohol abuse. And when we when we first planted the church, based on my family history, I thought our main thing was going to be education, that we were going to be a church that we're going to be great advocates for education. And what I learned really quickly is that the Lord had sent us to an area where there was a bigger problem. And that bigger problem was addiction. And um, so, so that's that's one of the things that we started to work on right away um, is we've got to we've got to start to build systems to help families deal with that. And that came down to, you know, hosting NA and AA groups. It came down to our own kind of Christian NA and AA groups. And we don't have this anymore. The pandemic kind of messed us up. But for a while, we actually were able to send one of our ministers who has a great story of recovery. He went down to Florida and opened up a house where we were able to send people. Because what often happens in Philadelphia is that a person is ready. They're like, I want to do some recovery work. They don't have insurance. They don't have any money. And the best thing they can do is go to this place six blocks from their house that does the work of recovery. 
Well, that place was also probably four blocks away from where they used to cop drugs. Um, and we discovered we got to get people away. We need yeah. them in a totally different place, community. But we got to be able to do this for people who don't have much money. And so we were sending people down to Florida for a while, get them away, get them in an area. And that turned out to be the most successful way, not 100% successful, but a really successful way for us to give people a couple of months. You know, some of them could take too much time off work. A lot of them didn't work. It could take as much time as they want. Some of them are still down there. <laughs> They're still down there doing really well. Um, and and we'll never come back to Philadelphia. And should, <laughs> you know, they, they need a place where they don't have all of that history and that memory. Um, so that is definitely a reflection for me. Um, it's not my story. It's not a part of my um, story. But I tell everybody in our church, like one of our, our models is everyone is addicted to something. Everyone is in recovery from something. And that whole recovery language and this 12-step language has really kind of been a way that we reflect the light of Christ. We reflect the the genuine nature of, of people really being valued and loved. Um, and then I think probably something we were kind of talking about earlier that is a new thing for us, and that is dealing with people who have had church hurt. So that's been a part of this whole thing with us getting church people now is I'm also recognizing that people are purposefully coming to us because they've been told we're a safe place if you've had to deal with some church hurt. And kind of specifically some of that African-American church hurt that comes from independent Black churches where there is, and this doesn't just happen in Black church, but you know, that's my community, um, where people, there isn't a lot of accountability. Um, people find themselves in churches where it's really easy for a couple of people to take advantage of folk. Mm -hmm. And people come to these churches really eager. They don't know. All they know is this is the church that's on the corner and I want to be a part of something. They walk in the doors and before they know it, they find themselves wrapped up. I mean, I can tell you some stories that would literally blow your mind and the kind of things that people were asked to do and told to do and told that they had to do because this is what the Bible tells them they're supposed to do. And they don't know any better because they, they're trusting these people. And then, lo and behold, over time, the Holy Spirit reveals to them that's actually not <laughs> what they're supposed to be doing. They've been, someone has abused them. Someone has taken advantage of their eagerness to serve the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. And we're getting a lot of people nowadays who are coming with that story. And um, and it's, it's man, it, it does so many interesting things to people. Like, I, I, I'm literally watching people every Sunday that are dripping with talents and gifts and abilities. But right now they're like this. Hmm. I need to make sure you all are as safe as people told me you are. So, you know, and I and, and, and they may come up every now and then and sing a song or give a testimony. But as quickly as they do, they'll they'll shrink back again. And so I'm learning to just slowly and, and slowly have conversations. And they'll reveal one thing, and then they'll reveal another thing. But over time, they're waiting. In fact, the, the person who's most recently kind of come out of this shell said, Pastor, I was really just waiting for you to not be who you seemed like you were. Mm -hmm. And they've been with us maybe about two and a half years now. Wow. And she was like, I, 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 you know, my experience is, this is my experience. And I, I saw what you were projecting. I heard what people were saying, but I couldn't believe it. Is that I, I think I'm to the point now where I think you all might be what you're thinking. And, and my response to that is, hey, so please understand, we're not perfect. So don't get this wrong. We're going to get some things wrong. But what I can promise you is that we are going to be faithful to not purposefully abusing the trust that we put in our religious organizations. Because we are asking people to put a lot of trust in us. 
And a part of that trust is we got to be faithful with that trust, you know, as, as much as we absolutely can be. Mm-hmm. So that's been a new kind of reflection is, you know, reflecting to folk who have experienced church hurt that um, there is a safe place. There is a balm in Gilead. There is a place where you can come mm-hmm. and, and heal from some of this. And what's interesting enough, even if that doesn't mean you stay with us, because if you get healed and then you're able to go back and be a blessing to others somewhere else, then God bless you. Um, yeah. But for for the season that you're here, we want to do the best we can to reflect to you the the best, the highest ideals of what it means to care for a person's soul. Yeah, so beautiful. I feel like we've got the the same kind of pull right now from folks who have. Uh, I, I think the the cycle goes that they uh, they feel uh, like they're a part of a church community. They're drawn in. It's really uh, applicable. It's family based. It's like friendship based. They get really close to people. And after they've been there for a few years, then it starts to be revealed all of the sort of nasty theological (laughs) things where it's like, now you're one of us. Okay, now you need to know that (laughs) this person's going to hell, this person's going to hell, and you're not allowed to learn science, you know, and... (laughs) And then they're so invested already in this community, they try to stick it out for their kids, but they just they just can't. And then eventually just end up leaving. And I I, I think we're we're starting to get some of those folks as well. And yeah. I, I think that's a really good insight that like, um, it's going to take a while for folks to trust. But you yeah. need to know that th- this we are trying to be who we say we're trying to be. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're not yeah, just trying to attract you and then right, pull out yeah. the rug. And yeah. Right. In, in black church, it's interesting that. So these are extremes, but good contemporary worship usually is found in independent churches, right? Mm-hmm. Independent churches are also the easiest place for abuse to happen. Yeah. Because you don't have the structure and the discipline that you have in, in you know, in churches that are that are connected to something larger than themselves. So then our question was, OK, how can we have that real on fire worship experience that you would find in an independent church and have the discipline and structure that you would have in a in a in a connected church, a denominational church? And, and finding that and, and, and owning that has been like one of our newer things, like letting people know. And because a lot of times when people come, most people think we're non-denominational because, and that's literally just based on the worship because folk expect a certain type of worship when they come. But but when they find out, and this just completely blows their mind when they're like, you guys are part of two white denominations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but being a part of those denominations is really a large part of what holds us to the fire. Like, you know, we're just not out here ordaining people all willy nilly. Um, like you'll find in a lot of churches nowadays, like, you know, mm-hmm. the, the processes that that are required for ordination in our denominations are a lot of what weeds out a lot of the abusive nature that can come with this. Not that we get it. No, we're not perfect at it, of course, either. But you can catch a whole lot of stuff if you just have a strong process, you know, in these things. And a lot of independent churches now, it's I want to do it. And, you know, we, there's a church in Philly that's known for if you pay the pastor five hundred thousand dollars, you will be ordained. Wow. And that's really how bad it's become. Yeah, it's really become something like that. 
that itself is abusive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just it just it's is 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 designed to continue a system of of taking advantage of people, especially financially. Wow. wow. And to be ordained in the Presbyterian church, you need to pass the hardest test that's ever been written. Five of them. Five of, and then to be ordained, yes. to be ordained in the UCC, you need to go through a grueling amount of relationship building mm-hmm. and the gauntlet of your fellow ministers and, and then, meeting upon meeting upon meeting like upon psychological meeting. exam. Psychological oh. exams, right? That too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because Zach um just kept seeing Batman over and over and over again in those Rorschach tests. Yes, yes. Oh, I Look. hate those tests. I told the woman while we were doing it, I said, um, can you explain to me how this works? And she said, no. And I said, because you don't know. And she said, no, if I explain it, then it won't work. And I was like, then you're reading tea leaves. This isn't real science, is it? You're just, if you can't explain it to me. And then, so she showed me this one and I was like, it looks like the bat signal. And she was like, which part of it? And I was like, the whole thing looks like the bat signal. And and she's that, like, that well, show violence. me where it is. And I'm like, does this mean I'm Batman? And she wrote down very combative. Um, I told them, I said, y'all can call me crazy if you want to, but I don't see anything. I'm sorry. I don't know what I'm supposed to see here. I see an ink blot. I see. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know what you want me. And, they, and and I don't know what they wrote on mine because of that. But I was like, I'm sorry. I just don't. I don't see it. I don't know what I'm supposed to see, but I don't see it. I'm sorry. She told me I intellectualized my emotional feelings. That's not at all true. Well, <laughs> we are we are beings with with emotions and with with logic, and they need to work together. And I'm sorry, I never thought of this, be... but it would. I I should go back. I would like to see someone do a Rorschach who actually sees something, because <laughs> I didn't see anything. <laughs> Maybe I'm sure there's a personality that just doesn't see. Well, and even like. So what does it mean? Like, what do you, what is, what yeah, is that? Even if I do see something, what does it mean? Yeah. Like, what are you, anyway. Right. Why are all of your pictures just pictures of my parents fighting? What? what <laughs> <laughs> How did you know what my parents Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How, so you said that there is a, a, are are you one of two pastors? Like, do you co-pastor with the Presbyterian? How does that? Yeah, so three now, but but so we brought myself and our youth pastor, Pastor Sherelle, who you all know, Pastor Shipman, who's also in, in, in GLI and one of our local pastors. Mm-hmm. So we brought those two over. Their pastor, um, who, who was, of course, criticized in the church, was very part-time at the time, um, became the executive pastor of the church, but he's also the executive director of the nonprofit. So our, our nonprofit that kind of handles all of our outfacing stuff, it's called the Commonplace, which is the building is in the name of the nonprofit, after school program, summer camp, excuse me, those kind of things kind of work. So any anything that's kind of like outfacing church programming, we put that into the nonprofit. And so, um, and again, Gifted has just worked out. Reverend Shippen is brilliant at the work she does and really kind of allows us to continue a strong youth ministry because of her work. Um, I do primary teaching, leadership development, kind of vision casting, stuff like that. And then uh, Pastor Chris uh, kind of oversees day-to-day operations um, through through the uh, through the nonprofit. So each of us that were able to really kind of fit a niche that that more uh, fit our gifts and skills uh, allowed us to do a, less of some of the things that stretched us 
and more of some of the things that were, you know, that were were our our our, our niche. Yeah. I love um co-leadership. Um that is something that like Zach and I have 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 figured out too that that he's got certain gifts that I don't and I have certain gifts that he doesn't and like um we don't have to take up our time doing the yeah. things that that we're not as gifted especially if the other person is actually gifted at it um and so uh yeah it yeah Sean I've I've gotten feedback from people in your church that you guys do a really good job of that mm-hmm. of of uh helping people to recognize what their gifts are and then giving them the space to express them mm-hmm. instead of starting with where are you know where's our problem where's our need and how can you be a warm body in that space right but that that you acknowledge that each person is individually created individually gifted that everyone has their own set of experiences gifts talents passions and all of that is given to them by their creator that there those things about them are individual facets of the way that they reflect christ and so by giving them the space to to flourish in that you are giving them the space to better reflect the divine in in their lives and in the community and you're kind of um creating a a church full of cities on hills that Uh, are just shining light I'm one of those crazy people that actually, you know, kind of believes what God says in the word. And by that, I that that part where he says, I will give you members and he's on the, you know, the body and that each member has a different responsibility. The eyes can't say to the ears, I don't need you. Um, And that once you like look at that image, the image of the human body or any anybody, and you say we've got fingers and eyes and toes and ears and teeth and, and nose and all these things have a different responsibility, different work to do. Each needs each other. Each is important. But the eyes can't be the ears and the ears can't be the eyes. Right. And a lot of times in church, especially once you are, are discovered that you're willing and gifted in anything, people say, well, we just need somebody to do this. Yes. No. If you don't like kids, <laughs> you should not be working with the youth ministry. You know, let's just not stick somebody up there. Or what will happen in a lot of churches, it's, again, cultural for Black churches, can't speak for everybody, but um, certain responsibilities are considered higher than others. Yes. And so people will just want to do things because they consider them to be, no, no, if that's, if that's not what you're gifted in doing. You know, if, if, if the, the, the hospitality ministry to me, it's critically important, absolutely important. If you don't like to smile, if you don't like to help people, if if you get annoyed when people ask you questions, and then no, you should not be an usher. You should be, you know. But but there's a place for you. There, whatever your personality is, whatever your gifts are, you know, you might be better counting the money. You know, if you if you don't like to be around people, but you're very nitpicky. And so let's find what's best. And, and, you know, people will pick things sometimes that aren't their best place. They'll do it themselves. They'll, they'll, they'll try to fit into a thing because they feel like that's the thing. And in most churches, we feel like the last conversation that we can have with somebody is, hey, this may not be the best use of your gifts. Oh. We, we have that conversation because now you, you, you will not drive people away. <laughs> I've been to churches where the first the first face I saw, I said, this is the last person they need 
<laughs> I remember in a in a church. Oh, I don't even know the natural church yeah, development development program, and you sharing that one person was super persnickety with a <laughs> visitor. Yeah. And you, when you talked to that visitor later, they were like, your church is not very friendly. Right. And you were yeah. like, it takes one person, one yes, person. Ma'am. And so I think like knowing the gifts of your people and putting them in the places where they can use them is not only good for them. Yeah. Practically, it's right. so important. So, right. so important. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody feels better. They feel better. Church operates better. Things run smooth more smooth. And it, I'll even take it to another level. Even a part of it is being able to say, I'm actually good at this, but I've also got to make room for some people who are also good at it. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because that's that's where we often stymie our growth is when we set up and we set ourselves up and we're like, this, I'm the one and nobody else is able to do this. Uh, Versus, yeah. you know, if you grow as a church, you're going to find that there actually may be somebody who's a little better then you are at this, you know, so when we did the merger, the praise and worship team changed. We had a good praise and worship team before the major merger. We have a great praise and worship team now. And a part of that shift was some people were asked to leave, you know, the praise and worship team, be on the choir. We'd love to have you on the choir. And there was some feelings. And so this is the way I explained. I said two things I'm going to say. One, if Lionel Richie comes and joins this church tomorrow, there are some tenors who are going to be put off the praise and worship team, you know, <laughs> but to, um, I don't care who they are, because, you know, if a person is is more gifted and really comes in, then we want to express this in the best way that we can. Number two, I said, if you all find someone who can preach better than me every Sunday, I will be completely honest with you. Where I will say to them, I will step back and I will sit in a chair and listen to what they have to say. And I, and I meant that seriously, um, because when we bring our gifts, we need to make room. We need to make room for people who are equally or even more gifted. And this is what, you know, y'all do a church long enough that you know that a lot of times people will purposely set themselves up in positions and will hold on tight. Well, I just had one. We probably just recently um, massaged the resignation of kind of like my last kind of person who was entrenched and not picking up all the spirit of who we were trying to be. Okay. We had to kind of gently get that person to the point of saying, um, I don't think I should do this anymore. And I was like, yeah, that's probably a good idea. <laughs> and it's not that they weren't good at what they did. So hard. But yeah. we were getting more people who were also good at it. And this person was making it very difficult for those people to participate in the ministry. Hmm. Like, no, we, we can't do that. <laughs> uh, that's the hardest thing a pastor ever told me. Was wow. Joshua Grace sat me down. I was doing so many things at the church. And he said, um, I think that somebody else can do this better than you. But this other thing that you're doing here at the thrift store, I don't yeah. think anyone else can do that right now, except for you. Mm. That's good. Yeah. Nobody else can do this other thing, but somebody else can do this thing right. here on the nonprofit board. And your presence here doing a half-hearted job is blocking that person from from showing up and, and expressing their gifts and their passion and their talent. And we appreciate the fact that you volunteered your time and your energy and your efforts and all of that. Thank you for doing that. But you're blocking that person that we know God is bringing to us. And there is a job that only you can do. 
and do that job. Just don't do this job too. And it was so embarrassing, but it was so true. And it was the thing, as he said it, it was like, oh no, he can tell that I've been naked this whole time. And (laughs) oh goodness, he has seen me and known me. And now I feel really uncomfortable, but everything he's saying is totally true. Thank God for the trust in that relationship too. Because that that takes trust both ways. You know, he trusted that if he told you that you weren't going to rebuff the advice and then, you know, you trusted him that, you know, that he was able to see something that you might not have been able to see. So, yeah. yeah, Josh was a good pastor. Was a good pastor. Well, I think, um, are we, how are we doing on time? 46 minutes. Okay. Um, I think I'd like to ask a final question. Please. Are you, are you okay. How are you experiencing the sacred right now, Sean? Not Pastor Sean, not, not yeah. Reverend James, not yeah. conference. Yeah. How are you experiencing sacred? So some some really interesting ways. And um, I actually have to myself thank COVID because of this. And (laughs) I'm I'm really getting to the point of saying, you know, horrible thing. Hated that so many people's lives were lost or changed or rearranged from it. Hate that churches and organizations and businesses suffer because of it. But all things work together for the good. And for me, one has been. I have participated as a as a worshiper in more services since COVID than probably I have since I started pastoring. And in just these two years, and it's virtual, but I go to church all week long now and I love it. It is so I'm a I'm a I I don't I'm a churchy kind of person. I love worship. I love being in church. And I go to great churches every <laughs> Sunday. And on Monday is a, Monday is kind of like usually two or three on Monday. Um, Because I'm trying to start to get my juices flowing. And so I know churches where I can go and I do the whole service from beginning to end. Hmm. And I may be doing a little work while I'm doing it. But, you know, from call to worship to benediction, I sit there and I am fed by it. And that's been really good for me. And it's been some really eclectic stuff and some different things. And um, not all the same type of services, not all the same type of sermons, not all the same. But being able to just sit there and be poured into hmm. has been really, really important for me and helpful for me doing COVID. Um, I also feel like during this season, I have um I have I have found my voice a little more, even in kind of what we do, what I what I'm doing with you all, what we're doing together, hmm. which is um being able to be honest with myself about the fact that I have a I have a lot of experience in the life of the church and a lot of experience that I think would be helpful to people. And I love, I love the Lord and I love the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And I want to see thriving churches. I want to see churches doing well. And it actually is life-giving to me to step outside of salt and light and to help and work with other churches, right? It, it it makes it it it's weird and it's 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 um and I think it's a, a very special and specific type of calling, but it actually points back to me some really good things that are helpful to me, mm-hmm. and let me know that my journey is not in vain. Lets me know that a lot of things that I've been through are not in vain, and that I've got this weird experience where I've been I call myself an ecumaniac because I've been a little bit of everything in my life. <laughs> ecumaniac, and I think that a little bit of everything. 
has helped me to go and work with other churches. I've seen it all and I've experienced it all. And I've got a little bit of experience in everything. And then I try to you know, bring that. And that's actually really, really just helpful to my own personal um, my own personal life and experience and growth. And then probably finally, um, um, my children are at the point of personal decision-making. Mm. And, and and by that, I mean that not just for their own lives, but also for Christ as well. And watching them go through this process has been like, this thing is serious. Mm. You know, my children are going to are about to decide whether they're going to continue to follow the Lord or not. And that's their decision to make. And I feel like I've done the best I could. And not done the best I could in some areas, but um, they're there. They're 20, 18, and 14. Um, and 20 and 18 especially have kind of made their decisions. Um, and I've just had to be like, no push here, done the best I could, set the table, put it in front of them, set them at the table. If they decide to get up from the table, that's their decision. I did. My freshman year in college, I got up from the table. And I was like, I'm not going back to the table. I've been forced to sit at this table for, <laughs> for 18 years. <laughs> right? My freshman year in college, I didn't go to church one day. My freshman year in college. Mm. And my sophomore year is when I accepted my call. So, you know, you just never know. You, you, you never know where someone's going to be. So um, mm. it's it's a it's a reflection back moment to me to, to kind of watch them have to get this place where where they've got a decision to make. And and I see very different decisions being made, um, but I'm hoping that all of that eventually, of course, leads them back to, you know, where I want them to be or where I think is best for them. But I acknowledge that that's it. That's between them and the Lord. They're going to have to have their own relationship with God at this point. Yeah. It's interesting that you um, are describing that as a way that you're seeing the reflection of the sacred, right? Like this letting go. Like that's, <laughs> that's scary, right? Like that is, I mean, not that you had control anyway, but like, I think, you know, yeah. when you're a parent, you do think that you, I mean, you do have some sense of control, but like seeing God and letting go, that is well done. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's next level. We think we're in control, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. especially in something like that, like you, you actually can mess it up by trying too much to be in control. Yeah, and we've heard that saying that too many times. People who, who just press it too much. So, okay. so my eighteen-year-old brilliant kid um, got a fifteen, sixteen-year-old SAT. So he's got his choice of where he wants to go to college. It looks like he's going to Columbia. So my twenty-year-old was home for Thanksgiving, sophomore year. Went to church on Sunday. After church, the eighteen-year-old asked his mother. Do I have to continue to go to church when I come home uh, when I'm in college? So mm -hmm. she said, yes, if you're home, yes. If you're at school, do what you want to. We're not saying that you have to, you know, but that's one of our policies in our house. You spend the night here Saturday, you go to church with us on Sunday. So that's, you know, and to which he said, well, I'm just going to uh, sleep on the street then. <laughs> <laughs> now, Get this, he's a germaphobe <laughs> and slightly OCD. 
So there'll be no speed between Yeah, but it, it, yeah, so it was, yes, you're on your own. What you do in college is your choice. When you come home, we still have a little bit. So there, that 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 kind of leeway stage. But he, this was really concerning for him. Do I have to continue to come to church? Plus, you know, PKs are interesting, and there's there's that little pushback that they have just because they know it's going to annoy us. Which right. is why whenever he brings it up to me, whenever like every now and then he'll tell me that he's an atheist or that um, he's got another word for it now, like uh, uh, not agnostic, not agnostic, but something different. Like, and I just say, okay. All right. Uh, just remember, Jesus paid for those that, that food you're about to eat. But <laughs> Jesus paid for the food. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> Jesus paid it all, including for the. <laughs> oh, thanks, Jesus. Well, thank you, Sean. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your heart. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Really, yeah, thank you. Well, you guys are a joy to me. It's a joy to see a couple working together the way you all are and kind of stepping out on faith the way you are. So kudos to you. God bless. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.